Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daktari. It's a pleasure to be back with you after a short winter hiatus. Uh, the war in the Middle East rages on. What else is there to talk about, right? Um, over 100 days since the war began on October 7th, the hostages have not been returned. Uh, missiles continue to fly, and uh, the IDF is still digging its way through Gaza. We hear so many pundits on both sides give their analysis of the situation. But what's missing from the conversation, as I have said on many of my media interviews, is the military expertise, the actual military expertise. What is this conflict in Gaza? What is the IDF doing? How are they doing it? How would you, uh, you know, give your analysis on that? Um, what are the challenges? How long will this take? Uh, and all of that. Um, that is why I am bringing in today's guest. I have wanted to bring him on the show for a very long time, but I think this is the perfect time to do that. With us today, John Spencer, who is the chair of the Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He is an award-winning scholar, professor, author, a combat veteran, national security and military analyst, internationally recognized expert and advisor on urban warfare, military strategy, tactics, and other related topics. And he's currently the chair of urban warfare at, uh, as I said, the War Modern War Institute at West Point, and also co-director of the Urban Warfare Project and host of the Urban Warfare Project podcast, also chair of um, the Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Forum, that is a New, New York-based think tank and a founding me member of the International Working Group on Subterranean Warfare, and I must mention the author of three books, Understanding Urban Warfare, Connected Soldiers, Life Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern Warfare, and the Mini Manual for Urban Defender. Welcome to the program, John Spencer. Thank you, Alicia. Thanks for that, that kind introduction. I have to. I mean, all of this amazing work, and I do spend <laughs> probably a long time on people's bios, especially people like you who uh, obviously deserve all the kudos. Welcome to the program. As I said in our intro, we have so many pundits giving their opinion often rooted in what they're seeing on the surface, even their emotional opinion in this case, as we know, this is a very, very much um, heightened and escalated uh, emotional um, war as well. We've seen that war trickle into the streets of New York and Chicago, Los Angeles, Toronto, with protests, um, often violent protests on the streets. I wanna start with you, obviously, as a military expert, giving your aerial perspective on everything that's going on from October 8th till today. I mean, give us your quick synopsis of what you think is going on. What are we missing? What do we need to know? Uh, and then we'll, we'll get into more detail. Yeah, I mean, that's gonna be hard to do. I think one of the things that I do 
um, which is unique, like you said, for all the different voices out there is I provide, you know, not the legal, although I, I study international humanitarian law, not the legal aspect or the moral aspect or what is right. One of the things that I have, I have because I've been given the liberty to be able to study this very exact type of warfare, warfare that happens in densely populated areas, I get to provide the historical context when all these people think that it's there's there's something new here, abnormal, not right. I, I, I'm able to provide that. So the quick summary is that on October 7th, anywhere from 3,000 to 4,000 Hamas members crossed Israel's border illegally and massacred you know, 1,200 plus Israeli civilians um, and took 250 hostages to include babies, Holocaust survivors, everything. Israel as a nation declared war. So a lot of times people use the word war very loosely, like war on drugs, uh, war in the Middle East. There are actually bounds to it. Israel as a nation declared war. There's two types of, of, of classification, an internationally armed conflict and a non-internationally armed conflict. Israel went to war to for three reasons or for three objectives. And they're, and they're very clear on that. Unlike other battles I, I've studied where it's not as clear. Number one, return all the hostages. Number two, dismantle Hamas's military capability. And number three, to secure its borders. In order to do that, it mobilized it mobilized 300,000 reserves, but deployed into Gaza about 100,000 plus um, five divisions of IDF to start to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities. All, by the way, at the same time, Hamas launching rockets at Israel's civilian sites. And as has some people view, again, a lot of misconceptions about what's going on in Gaza and then trying to look at similar case studies across history to say, like, this is unlike anything else. A lot of actually, um, and, and what I've been writing about lately are myths about what can and can't happen in a war, myths about what has happened in the past, or just right. really myths about Gaza, like the fact that it's the densest place on the earth, one of the densest places on earth. It's not. The fact that it's like one continuous urban area, it's not, it's like 24 cities, actually. And it is a small area with highly dense populations. But as the IDF has moved forward, the IDF has faced many of the enduring challenges of this type of combat. And really, that's one of the biggest mistakes that of all of these wars is people not understanding what combat we're seeing. We're not seeing a counterinsurgency, a counterterrorism fight. Even We're not even seeing the battles similar to what was done against ISIS, where ISIS grabbed a hold of cities for a year or two and then had to be pried out of those cities. There's so many differences here. This is a, a war, more like World War II, where you have a military, the IDF, attacking an enemy-held city with over 30,000 fighters, but also having an underground city to help them achieve their strategy. An underground city woven into the civilian homes, protected sites, which is all very new in war. So the IDF has methodically moved forward to include, although they're accused of not, uh, lots of steps that are very normal in urban wars to protect civilians, like giving them three weeks to evacuate, doing all the calls, uh, all of this. But there's so many uniqueness to Gaza that people just don't understand it, or they don't understand the objectives, or they don't understand that it's never happened in war. So I, I'm busy trying to write, talk, hmm. um, explain it to people. 
So do they really not understand it or they do not want to understand it? Let's break this down because you 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 said a lot of interesting things that we're not hearing in the media. We we just are not hearing them or they're being refuted so quickly that there's no chance for these ideas to develop. A, the fact that um, Israel is giving them time to evacuate. All we hear is the, you know, Gaza Health Ministry taking that death toll up. And if you're a human with a beating heart, you're looking at those numbers rise and you're thinking, wow, you know, enough is enough. Or I'm hearing so many things, right? I mean, from 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 the average news consumer um, being like, oh my gosh, enough is enough. There's children, there's women, there's families. And, and Israel is, you know, tactically uh, targeting these families all the way to South Africa, taking Israel to the uh, international court and, and accusing them of genocide. I mean, c- can you break that down for us? What is Israel doing? Is it is it is that the what's done, or is this a humane move, or is are they being inhumane? I mean, what is what's your take on this? Yeah. So the the broad summary is that, and I just got back a couple of weeks ago from on the ground. So one, usually some of these voices have never been in a war, never been to an urban war, never been on the ground. They couldn't tell you the difference between Gaza and Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. They couldn't tell you. Right. Uh, they just see what they see on TV and they hear the messages in, in literally the headlines of things that are um, inferring things that can't be mm-hmm. known without evidence. Uh, and there's so many examples of mm-hmm like the fact that Israel is targeting civilians, which is false, like the fact that Israel is not following the all the laws of war, um, it, which is false based on my, and I wrote a CNN op-ed about this. Everything that I'm seeing is that Israel is actually going above and beyond, not just the law, but the what we call the precautions that you have to take to protect civilians in war, even when the other side so Hamas is like, if I teach and I teach urban warfare to militaries, Hamas is the case study for use of human shields and 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 now human sacrifice. Since Can Hamas- you explain that? I, I think people don't understand what that even means. What is Hamas doing to put its civilians in, in, in harm's way? So the first step, so human shields is a term um, which it means that the other side is trying to use civilians to restrict the use of force against themselves. They're hiding under s- civilian sites. So where you, Hamas is unique, what Hamas has done, Hamas doesn't have a single military site. So usually when you fight a war, and again, this isn't a war on one city, this is a war against Hamas in Gaza, which is 24 cities, which the IDF are currently you know, basically fighting in about seven cities. Hamas right. has built a military infrastructure under the civilians for the purpose of not allowing anybody to strike them. You have to basically have to hit a civilian building in order to, to, to get to a Hamas militant who doesn't wear a uniform, who doesn't have military sites. It, 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 its entire composition is a war crime. It has built itself underneath the civilians. It fights within the civilians. It doesn't take any measures because the law says both sides have to take measures to protect civilians. On the IDF side, because this is not new either in urban warfare, if you're going to attack a city, you surround it, you you give um, the civilians a chance to evacuate from it, and then you slowly discriminately identify what's a military target, what's not, what's a protected site, does it still have its protections? Uh, It's really complicated, but people also look at what the result is. So if we want to talk about casualties, we can talk about that. Like that's being used as some, and, and to include South Africa as an, as an inference 
the IDF is not following the laws of war or doing something illegal like targeting civilians, which is illegal in any any war, no matter what the case is. The IDF are not doing that. One, it, there are, of course, civilian casualties, and there are civilian casualties in all wars. Lisa, most people don't know that 90% of the casualties of modern wars are civilians, not militaries. And that's a UN statistic. So for the last 20, 40 years, 90% of the casualties are civilians because of the fact that war happens in these dense populated areas. And no matter what is done, all the civilians never leave. So there's civilian casualties. So to play devil's advocate here, because I, I, I think this is wonderful. We're not hearing this anywhere else. Um, you know, to, to play devil's advocate, you know, we're seeing world bodies led by the UN and others who even here in, in our Congress calling for ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. Um, their point being, um, well, if, if the IDF's goal is to go after terrorists, then this is not the right battle it's fighting because civilians are dying, right? Right. So what the, do you say to that? Yeah, absolutely. So one, while Hamas is a terrorist organization designated by the United States, the UK, and many other countries, there are also the political apparatus with a military in Gaza. So one, the paradigm in which people are looking at this war is wrong. It's not a counter-terror operation. Hamas is a military. It has 30,000 fighters. It has 15,000 rockets, if not more, that it's launched against Israel, all war crimes. So one, you have to change the paradigm of, of if it's going after terrorists. Hamas is going after terrorists that are Hamas, but the IDF are actually going to trying to save its civilians, its hostages. No military in the modern era, really, I can't find it anywhere, have fought a against a military who is holding that level of civilian hostages. Really, you have to go back to World War II and talk about POWs, which the Israeli right. hostages are not POWs. No military has fought a war. Again, this is not a battle over one city. This is a battle over multiple cities. No military has ever fought a war in the modern era where there are rockets going over their head, headed to their homes behind them. And people just don't understand that, that there have been rockets emanating out of Gaza every day since October 7th. Every single day. I every, know. And, and Hezbollah out of Lebanon. I mean, this is it's a multi-pronged war that people just do not understand or they don't want to understand because this is color war and they just pick a side. And um, often that side is, is obviously against Israel, especially in the current environment that we live in. Um, so I could have this conversation with you for five hours, but because we have to move quickly, let's move over to the IDF side. What are the challenges what are they facing and you know what what makes this what has made this this military operation take as long as it has and how long will it take yeah absolutely so what the idf faced are many of the same challenges that every military has ever fought in urban areas has um the three-dimensional flight of urban combat intermixed between civilians where you have to protect the civilians you have to discriminate between a, a civilian and a military target it, but once you're entering a, a contested, dense urban fight, which, again, is not mm -hmm. counterterrorism, usually in a counterterrorism like Osama bin Laden raid, you know where the enemy is. You target that very small area mm -hmm. and then you mm -hmm. do a raid or, or an ambush or something like that against them. These are contested cities where everything is a threat, where there are thousands of Hamas fighters in every window. But unique to the IDF, so that challenge is there, right? The fact you can't see around the block, you can't see through buildings. The defender right. gets to choose to when to attack you. He can lay ambushes right. everywhere. But the IDF faced something that nobody's faced in modern war, which is 
the fact that the underground means more than the surface. The fact that the enemy is not 15 feet, but 100 feet underground where no munition, uh, no normal munition could get to them. And, and the Hamas strategy isn't to defeat the IDF. So the IDF about, you're at, you ask about time, and this is what I always get. How long will this take? Well, the enemy gets a vote. So the enemy gets a vote on how much destruction has, is required as well. The IDF have to clear urban terrain to achieve its objective, which is get the hostages back and to dismantle Hamas's military capability. Every rocket, every weapon. Right. In order to do that, you have to move them methodically and clear every building, every tunnel. You have to discover them. How long does it take? So it takes about two months, if you really want to get, get honest about it, to clear a neighborhood in a city. So if you look at how many neighborhoods like Jabalia, Sajaya, um, the, the neighborhoods of Khan Yunus, you're talking many months. And we've seen actually the IDF have moved at record speeds, at record low casualties, and clearing urban terrain. Wow. So they've cleared most of northern Gaza at this point. It took nine months to clear the city of Mosul with 100,000 soldiers or you know security forces backed by the strongest military in the world's air power, the United States and coalition, nine months to clear it. Um, the IDF need time. Hamas wants that time to run out. All right. You just said record low civilian casualties, which is the opposite of what we hear, right? Well, I said record um, low casualties as in IDF casualties. Um, I don't like playing record the low. That's what I, sorry. Yeah. That's what I meant. L record low. I mean, sorry. And that's not what we're, uh, I apologize. Uh, that's not what we're hearing. Um, talk so, about, yeah, tell me. Yeah. So Lisa on the, so like you said, because of journalists, academics, political leaders who want to paint Israel in a bad light, they try to mm -hmm. say that it's the most destructive most casualty civilian deaths of any modern war. Well, right. that's that's actually a false statement because there's no comparison to Israel's fight in Gaza. You had to go back to World War II when the laws were different. Where you had to go back to like the 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 firebombing. I mean, I don't like playing the body count number one because I've never seen a, a war in the history of wars where you take a body count from the enemy down to a single digit, which could never be known in real right. time. You don't know how many civilian casualties are dead. And the fact that the enemy is given a number, because let's be clear, the Gaza Health Ministry is Hamas. It's a Hamas Correct. organization. No, even if it was the number was true, which is right. no way it can be. Like even in the Battle of Mosul, a year later, nobody knew how many civilians were, were had, had died. Of course, of uh, course. The fact that there is this, not a single combatant number in the Hamas casualty numbers, it, it's almost pales in common, really like it's anti-intellectual to use that number, but everybody uses it as a justification to show that Israel is doing things purposely wrong, targeting civilians, committing genocide, like all these, right. it's right. really all false. It's, it's right. they're just lies. Right. And when they run out of, of, of uh, talking points or rebuttals, they'll tell you you're on Israel's um, payroll right. uh, to shut you up. Right. Um, this is it's all very, very informative. I want to talk about two things. First, let's start with the tunnel tunnel uh, system. 
you've been studying urban warfare for your entire career. How surprised were you at the complexity and um, just the expansiveness system? Can you just qualify it? I know the New York Times, it took them three months, but they came out with it. And then you still have people um, questioning the legitimacy of the New York Times. Again, New York Times, no friend to Israel and no, no, you know, <laughs> it's not a not Zionist newspaper for sure. Um, how expansive is it? I mean, how, what should people know about the complexity of this and what dimension it adds to the war? Yeah, um, you're right. And, and same thing with the rapes and denial. Like, I mean, it's, it's just so crazy that people don't want facts. Like you can have your own opinions, you can't have your own facts. Um, right. So I have been studying tunnels for my entire career as well. I've been in Hezbollah tunnels. I've been in Hamas tunnels. I've been in North Korean tunnels. Um, I, before the war, the estimates that we all gave were about 300 miles of tunnels underneath Gaza. The estimates were wrong. And from everything that the IDF has discovered, the 15,000, no, 1,500 tunnel entrances um, the, that we think the estimate is more like 450 miles. But the, right. it isn't the scale, the number or the, the complexity, like layers, right? Everything from 15 feet down to 300 feet underground, which is really hard to do where right. no military munition can reach, but it is the the design of the, the tunnel network that is so troubling. People don't understand that this, yeah, there are tunnels in war all the time. It's very common. Now, in fact, I recommend people, if you want to defend something, dig a tunnel between buildings, things like that. But Hamas built an entire world, a city, multiple cities underground, but under the civilian cities on, on purpose, under hospitals, under schools, so that it can be protected. It's a war crime to do so, to use the the surface as your shield. Hamas's whole strategy is underground. The hostages are underground, Hamas fighters are underground. They want the right. world to see the destruction on the surface, trying to get to the to stop Israel. People don't understand that that, yeah, I can give you the numbers. And I and I was just in the biggest one they found to, a couple of weeks ago. It, right outside of Israel's border, it, it was an invasion tunnel that took millions of dollars and years to build. Only if through the pursuit of destroying Israel and killing the Jewish people, this entire network is is historic as in no military has ever faced it. So you can fight for the IDF. You could fight weeks on the surface in a neighborhood in Gaza and not know what's underground. Until yeah. you find where the tunnel entrances are, because they're at a depth that you can't you can't use technology to find. You have to literally go into every house, every school, every hospital, and find where the tunnel entrances are, and then try to explore them. Again, when you talk about why is it taking so long, it's because you can literally fight a week long battle for a single mm -hmm. block and not know that that had nothing to do with the fact that there is an underground city underneath that block. Now, has the I, I mean, taking what you're you're saying, um, has the IDFs? I mean, I know at the, the top of the show you said what the the objectives of the IDF have been from day one. Have have those objectives, or has the strategy shifted because of what they're finding on the ground? I mean, how long will it take to dismantle this entire system? People are comparing it to the New York City subway systems. You know, four hundred fifty miles is not a joke. So. I mean, has their strategy or their objectives or priorities shifted? And if so, what are they looking at now? What do they hope to achieve before withdrawing, getting out of Gaza? 
Yeah, honestly, and like I said, it's unique in a, one of the uniqueness in the war is the fact that you have such clear objectives. Because there are wars that even the United States have fact where the objectives have changed um, right. during the war. That, that's actually not unique either. I don't think so. I think, yes, I think um, even the IDF in Israel is surprised by the, the complexity of the underground they found. And they found entire mm-hmm. weapons manufacturing mm-hmm. plants, mm-hmm. chemical plants right. underground. They found luxury right. uh, tunnels, uh, invasion tunnels. But it doesn't change those, those three objectives get the hostages back, which Hamas is still holding in tunnels, um, inhumane treatment, dismantle that that tunnel network and get every rocket and there's still rockets being fired. So maybe it changes the estimates on how long it would take to clear portions of urban terrain. But I think the, the objectives are remain. They're very clear. Uh, yes, the last objective, secure the borders, is the most complex because you have to like the wall didn't work. The, right. the tech, you, right. know, you had right. to establish yeah. a barrier, all that. Speaking of not working, um, I wanted to save this for the end, but I actually, I think this is a perfect segue. Um, obviously, security for Israel, national security for Israel is a 24-7 job. It's not something where you could say it was the weekend or it was a holiday or it was, you know, um, internal fighting in terms of the left and right in Israel. I haven't really heard a a a good reason as to why there was this um, intelligence miss by, I would say, the world's probably smartest in terms of counterterrorism, military and and, and security apparatus. How did Israel miss this? It's so, Lisa, we call it a black swan. So a black swan is something that is not imaginable. Um, You can't imagine against it. It's really hard to protect against it if, if it's a failure of imagination. Yes, there were intelligence failures. Yes, there were um, failures in reliance on technology over manpower and the cost to the nation because defense costs a lot of money. Um, right. And the cost and the, and the it's a series of unfortunate events that add up to this. But if there's, so the really one of the mistakes is allowing Hamas to build military capability and it, it, and it, and it to include with its state backer, Iran, uh, to build that level of capability, that level of a terror network underground, the, the rockets, all of that. To me, that's one of the biggest mistakes. And, and Israel won't do that again. October 7th changed the world. But there will be a post-war commission, I'm sure, to look in at every detail to what intelligence was missed and why. What 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 cutbacks were made and to fix that. But right. what's important is that in order to secure the borders, there has to be a new security paradigm for Israel's borders, both in the South and in the North. Another question I, I have for you, and this is probably not a popular question, but I, I, I do think it's, it's worth asking. Um, a lot of things you said outlined the standard to which Israel holds itself regardless of world opinion, right? Regardless of what's going on at the UN, regardless of the condemnation of various, you know, university groups or members of Congress, Israel continues to hold itself to a higher standard. Um, it's not fighting a, a traditional enemy, as you also said, but it is still being taken to court, you know, um, and being accused of genocide. And that word genocide is being thrown around, apartheid is being thrown around. And, and you and I have studied this region for a long time, but that's not true. If you were advising Israel 
would you continue the path that Israel has taken? Or let's start from October 8th. Would you have followed the same strategy? What would you have done differently? And how would you continue or how would you conduct this war at this point? Given the fact that Israel will never win the war of public opinion, it will never, these accusations won't stop regardless of the standards with which Israel is conducting itself. Taking, yeah. taking all that into consideration, what would your position be? So one of my positions, because of my expertise, would be to show the world that that what Israel is doing is actually different than I would do it. It's actually more constrained, more restricted, more um, civilian harm mitigation than any other military has ever done in the history of modern wars. But I do realize, and I know this too, that yes, Israel has autonomy. Israel can do things within the law the way they want, but war is a contest of will. And Israel has been stopped after the Six-Day War, after the Yom Kippur War. It is a thing that where Israel is told to stop, even when it has the right in all of the international law and the right of self-defense after attack, all of that. Right. One of the things that I would do differently is every myth of, really, there, there's a danger here. And unfortunately, Israel is the person in the limelight where the world, like there is rules in in wars. There is a limits to brutality that, that have been an evolution since, especially since World War II, like Okay, you can't do these, you can't do that. You have to take precautions. But what the danger is, is when the world thinks that there are rules that aren't applicable. I understand when a pacifist doesn't want any war. I understand when a human rights activist wants you to do things differently. But one of the things that I, my strategy is to show people like, like, who do you view as the standard for the application of the use of force in urban areas? Do you want to use the United States? Let me show you what we have done in wars following all the laws, but there is no such thing as a bloodless war. There is no such thing as a non-destructive urban battle. There, I mean, that's the, the, the part where there's dangers, where something almost becomes like not in a court of, it almost becomes common law in the court of, of public opinion. Like you can't use white phosphorus in war you, or you can't attack a hospital. Like, you know, you're not supposed to attack a hospital until it loses its protection but let me show you where hospitals have been completely. Can you can you break that down for us? This is actually I, I tweeted something like this where, you know, it's it's the MO right now of terrorist organizations, obviously against Israel and the United States, that narrative, right, of fighting the, the powerful white man, which is another misnomer. We have so many different um, racial and ethnic groups in Israel. Um, it is the MO of terrorist organizations because they know how the world of public opinion works. Uh, both formally and informally, to just attack Israel every few years, knowing that they're going to be handed a, a huge condemnation, um, obviously placing assets next to mosques and churches and hospitals and schools, hiding weapons in schools. I, I remember doing this story for Fox News over 15 years ago with UNRWA and, um, you know, hiding the weapons in schools. I mean, people still don't believe this. Can you talk about that, A, as a tactic, and B, what are the, the international laws on on this when it is so sticky and, and when you know the enemy is, is doing this on purpose. Yeah. So it's called lawfare law. It's called lawfare. Basically when a combatant uses the laws of war as a protection against themselves, it's a war crime and Hamas does it. But let me give you examples. For instance, like a hospital, like there are protected populations and protected objects and sites 
in urban areas very specifically and why urban warfare is the hardest for any military to do across the globe is because once you enter an urban area, you have restrictions on what you can and can't do, things you can attack and things you can't. So there are all these civilian objects, hospitals, mosques, schools that from the starting point are protected. Like you're not supposed Mm -hmm. to strike Mm -hmm. them. But once the combatant inside that area uses them for military purposes and to create harm against the attacker, they lose their protections. Because if not any military, and this is why hospitals have become really big things in wars, and I like to give you a few examples, that they become these tools of the the person who's violating the laws so that they can achieve their goals. So in the first battle of Fallujah, which I want to take you back to 2004, the U.S. military was ordered to attack the city of Fallujah because four U.S. citizens were killed. And the president said, go get those responsible. So the U.S. military, the Marines, launched a campaign in, into the city in April of 2004. They lost the battle in six days because the al-Qaeda and other terrorists inside the city were using the hospitals, the one hospital, the main hospital, as a propaganda tool to show the world that they're to which sounds a lot like right now, actually, um, to trump up the number of civilian casualties erroneously right. and show pictures of wounded kids and, and and women and everything. So six months later, in the second battle of Fallujah, after the city had been given to the enemy, the U.S. military launched another attack. And then one of the primary objectives was the hospital. And there was a massive battle over the city's hospital, one, to protect it and secure it, but also to not allow it to become a propaganda tool. Correct. Right. And that's exactly what we're, we're dealing with right now. Yeah, um, same thing in the Battle of Mosul, which everybody wants to use against Israel. Like, look, in the Battle of Mosul, there were less bombs dropped, less destruction. Not true. Uh, and the, But they don't mention about how the hospitals, like they did full armor division attacks. They they bombed hospitals because ISIS was using them as headquarters. They were shooting out of them. They did. One of the hospitals was basically destroyed. Everything in the compound was destroyed. But people seem to have like this global amnesia. What happens in war? Right. And and try to say Israel is committing genocide. Right. And, and when did you ever see the world cry over the children in Syria or the children in Afghanistan or the children anywhere else that have been? Uh, victims of, of of terrorism. John, I'm almost out of time, but I cannot let you go without asking you the crystal ball question. Um, not even crystal ball for you, because I think that you are very much informed and you'd be best positioned to answer this. Where do you see this war going? How long is it going to take? And are we looking at the conflict? I know this is a huge question, but very quickly, if you can just give us your your quick take. Um, do you think what's going on in terms of Iran's proxies in the region, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, will turn this into a larger conflict? I don't want to say World War III, but that's what how people are phrasing it. Do you think this will end up in a larger conflict and just the timeline of it all? How do you think this is going to go? Sure. So a starting point is that this war could end tomorrow if Hamas gave back the hostages, um, surrendered, gave up all their arms and allowed the Palestinian people to live free without Hamas rule. It could end tomorrow. That's not going to happen. What's, what's going to happen is the IDF need time to clear the urban terrain and find the hostages, dismantle all the rockets. Just That's going to take, you know, estimate six months, uh, to be honest. Mm-hmm. 
But in the midst of that, they they have entered different phases. So there will be an opportunity to allow Palestinian people to move back into places like in northern Gaza under a different security framework. And the IDF have been working on this. Although Gaza is not just an Israel problem. It's an Egypt problem. It's a it's an Arab world problem. It's there, there's lots of complexity. here. But from a war perspective, it could you could achieve the objectives, the first two objectives in in a few months based, but the enemy gets a vote, right? You can turn a city block into a one month battle, depending on what the enemy does and how much it does. It. You have to maintain the, 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 the will to continue the operation. And I'm, I believe the IDF have managed that despite the IC South Africa's ridiculous claims have managed those with its allies um, expectations of what it is or is not doing to achieve its objectives. But that 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 incorporates into the time on the broader the, the broader perspective, as Iran seems to be fine, sacrificing all of its proxies to include Hamas, the Houthis, and in some ways, Hezbollah, who's actually told them no thanks. Um, but it's also you know, striking groups in now in Pakistan. And uh, it, it's right. I think personally that there is risk of escalation, but within the actual what it nation states do. There is actually some rationale here to not expand it into a a, a bigger conflict. And I hope that happens. But step one is to eliminate Hamas. And step two is to figure out what it looks like in in Gaza, in the region the day after. But Iran gets a vote. So if it wants to escalate, um, luckily the United States has stood with Israel to include with the strong deterrence of don't do it. Don't do it. Don't try to open another front. Right. Uh, at this moment. Uh, but like you said, which I, I want to end with, is that everything that Hezbollah has done since October 7th, any other time of history would warrant a full scale Israel in self-defense. Right. 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 And it, like you said, it's the mullah's world. We just live in it. It's it's their call. It's yeah. their call. It's really the, the ball is in their court. Unfortunately, that's how they have set it up. And that's how the West has allowed them and empowered them and emboldened them. So here we are. John, everyone should hear from you. This is These are our perspectives that we don't hear about the war in terms of its military um, detail. And thank you so much for being here with us. We, you absolutely must come back. We must continue the conversation. This was not enough time. Thank you so much. I will link your books to the episode. And I, I encourage everyone to follow you on social media. You have some wonderful threads about the tunnels in Gaza and, and many other things that you're following right now. Very, very important voice right now. Thank you again, John Swanson, for being with us. And for the rest of you who would like to subscribe to our podcast, go to youtube.com. You can also find it anywhere else you get your podcast. And to subscribe to our daily top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com. See you all next time.